Dr. Rosa Vaquez Espinosa, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, now, you're a chemical biologist and uh, an Amazon jungle scientist and a self-confessed jungle girl. And, and I really want to delve into all of that. Um, but tracking back really to the beginning, I guess, you were, you were born in Peru and um, were initially inspired, shall we say, um, by your grandma for going around for the natural medicines in her garden. So I think let's start there. Tell me a little bit more about grandma's garden. Yeah, well, nice to meet you, Harriet, and thank you so much for the space. I've been in the laboratory for so long during my career, and now I feel like I've taken that into the field and continue the work there. So it's quite exciting to now kind of go back and share those experiences. I was born and raised in Peru uh, up until I was 18, and I was born in the city, in the capital, Lima. But my family truly comes from indigenous remote areas. Uh, from one side of my family, they come from the Andes, so high, small towns in the mountains. And the other, the rest of my family comes from the jungle. And so just as, you know, any child growing up, I would spend a lot of time visiting them, especially the summers when I would be off school. Um, I would just spend uh, in, entire summers either learning how to grow or harvest potatoes in the Andes mountains or quite literally traversing the Amazon River in these small traditional wood boats that we call pequepeques and then playing with monkeys on my head and just having a laugh with my cousins, something that I never really thought twice about until I travel around the world, study science and realize it's quite a privilege to be able to be so close to nature, especially as, as things get degraded now in our environment. And my grandmother, she was from the mountains, a town called Siwas, where they lacked access to a hospital. And in fact, they only had one missionary doctor come every month or so to check on the community. And so the rest of the time, they had no access to Western medicine. And so everyone in the community relied on the elderly to be able to cure diseases or any illnesses, most of the times using medicinal plants around them. And my grandmother learned from her ancestors on how to access all of these medicine from nature. And so at that time already, she had built a giant garden crops, not only for food, but also for medicine. And when they moved to the city uh, for me and my cousins to be born and be able to access education and hospitals, she brought all of that knowledge with her and built the exact same replica, but at a smaller scale in our garden, where I spent every free time I had outside of school with her, um, learning how to grow these plants, how to use them, how to combine them, and really accessing all of that ancestral knowledge through doing and observing. She never had the chance to go to school, but she would give me her own explanations from a cultural perspective, a mystical perspective, and really this ancestral cosmovision that we have in our towns. That's extraordinary. I mean, you really didn't stand a chance, did you? You were, you were going down that road. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think so too. It was meant to be. So, I mean, it, it almost seems like you wouldn't necessarily need to do the formal bit in the in the paved Western world, but you, you didn't go straight from the garden to being a chemical biologist. You had to go through some formal routes. So how, how did that transpire? So during that time, I was already attending school and really deep into my science classes. My dad would buy me all the science books that he could get his hands on. Nobody in my family is a scientist, but he just had a personal interest. And so I would be learning at school and at home all these concepts on biology, chemistry, genetics, 
And at the same time, I had every afternoon with my grandmother learning more about what she knew. So I started to ask questions like any child. And she told me what she knew from her perspective. But then I wanted to know, well, what's the chemistry behind this? I learned at school that, you know, some medicines like aspirin originally came from plants. So then I was wondering, well, what's in these plants that she's using that is helping my stomach ache or that is helping my skin conditions. And I had no answers. And so at that time I started to dive in the internet. That's kind of when the internet was becoming a big thing around the world. And I remember I could find more about traveling to space than I could find about medicinal chemistry from the Peruvian Amazon. Um, in fact, the when you look at the facts, less than 1% of medicinal plants in the Amazon rainforest have been explored with the scientific methods. And the few that have, many have really reached the market, including an FDA-approved drug just a few years ago from a medicinal tree bark that we find in the jungle. And that just blew my mind as to why did we knew so little. I just, I just wanted to know more. I refused to think that it was impossible that we didn't know more yet. And I think that stubbornness is what really took me to pursue a career in science. I just wanted to understand what I couldn't understand, see if I could seek answers that way. And then when I moved to the US, when I was 18, I pursued a double career, one in biochemistry and one in molecular biology. And during that process, I started to gain experience in the lab. And all I was just craving to do was go back to the jungle and use what I was learning to get a little closer to those answers. That's extraordinary. I mean, you say like any kid, anyone asks questions. I don't know that everyone delves quite as deep as you seem to have done. Um, I think um, that that might might be a little superpower you've got there. Um, no, that- I, I think it was also everyone around me. They just always encouraged us to, if they didn't know the answers, for us to look it up, whether that was a book or the internet. And in a way, when you do look up information, you have so much more access now with even papers being digitalized, but that perhaps wasn't really the case at the time. And I remember actually going when I was 15, starting to travel to the Amazon, not just to visit family, but to visit research centers and universities. I just wanted, I just figured that if things were not on the internet, perhaps somebody would tell me what they knew or what they were studying. And my mom came with me and she would just stand outside of the center or institute and just tell me, well, you go introduce yourself and just ask what you want to ask. And so I did. And I'm sure I don't remember very well, but I'm sure many didn't really take me seriously, but I do remember the ones that did and that didn't think I was being crazy and instead took their time and sat down with me and told me about the medicinal gardens they were building or the medicinal insects they were studying. And some of those interactions built into some of the longest connections that I have right now, even with research partners I work with at the current moment. Mm-hmm. So it seems that the the, the rainforest, given, given everything you just said, that was always on the cards. You didn't perhaps know at that point in what capacity you were going to be working in and around the rainforest, but you, you, it was, it was, it was obviously a, a part of your fundamental interest. Um, yeah, I, I think that I know our ancestors come from them. I know we have family there. I know eighty percent of my blood by DNA test is indigenous. I don't know exactly what tribe we derive from, and I think that's an answer that I've been trying to get closer to. And in my mind in a way science gets me closer to it the more I interact with communities and the deeper I go in the jungle yeah I suppose it is a a, a slight self-discovery journey 
from two angles in which case because I suppose you know we often can take for granted that we don't necessarily need to know where our ancestors came from but yeah it's quite quite a fascinating link when did you graduate uh, which country were you in for a start I was in the US so I did four degree four years sorry of the dual degree and then I worked for a while but in that process I did get the chance to study other traditional medicines mm -hmm. and I went to the country I thought was one of the most developed in taking the traditional medicine and in a way combine it with western medicine which we don't really see in Peru not to that level and it was China so I had some experiences there working in a traditional medicine hospital and then after that I pursue a PhD when I was entirely sure that's what I was going to be doing in my life and so I went to University of Michigan for a bit over five years and then completed a postdoctorate uh, position there as well. And that was it. You were you were ready to go out in the world and save it. Basically, <laughs> it was during the PhD that I I when I had long conversations with my PI, who was extremely supportive from the day number one, where where I told him I am doing this so I can go back and study the jungle. Don't know what capacity that don't know exactly what that means, but I know I want to get a little closer. And he was always keen to support that. And when the time came, and I felt also more ready in my capacity to lead a project, which was a bit after mid of my PhD. Then I applied for independent grants with his support. And that's how I became a National Geographic Explorer to start pursuing those ideas in the jungle. And so that's a few, you know, a bit before COVID when I started to now lead scientific projects there. And that's what I've continued now to do. Mm -hmm. It's just so fascinating. Um, and it's so nice how much support you've had along the way from your father buying all the books about science to that PI giving you the support for the grant. It's 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 a wonderful story. Um, and I know you're a, a native in, in the rainforest, but you know, it's it's not it's 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 not really a completely welcoming environment regardless you know with the boiling rivers and the poisonous creatures you know <laughs> was there any part of you that that had any thoughts oh gosh is this really a, a sensible thing should I <laughs> stay in the lab perhaps <laughs> um I yeah first I'll say that I've definitely had incredible support along the way I think I've also been able to not listen when people were not fully supportive because that has also happened mm -hmm. or you know, fully welcoming. Um, just, I think I bring it back to that curiosity and stubbornness in a positive way um, to do something that I believed in and I think has brought me here. I never really thought twice about, oh God, is this the best place to do work? Because I think I've always just seen it as going back home. And I think that's because of my exposure and time living in the jungle as a little girl. So my mother would disagree when we work in the Bowling River or we go to, you know, areas that would definitely require more safety protocols, which we do take. I do take that very seriously, especially as we have grown our team and now we're taking young students with us. We follow all of those processes. Um, and I think that's where that scientific method training kind of really positions as well to do so. But from a personal level, I just feel an affinity. If I am too far away for too long I feel it and that happened actually throughout COVID when I was finishing my PhD and I couldn't travel because of all the restrictions and it felt the heaviest in terms of not just getting any closer and the only way I explain that it's 
by that connection with ancestry. And I think that has become a, a larger topic in my pursuit because when you do field work, especially in a place like the Amazon forest, you cannot separate science from spiritualism, regardless of what you believe in terms of spiritualism, religion, or anything regarding those topics. I think we get closer to culture by getting closer to science and in a place where culture is just at the basis of people and nature, um, it's just unavoidable to 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 think about all of this. Have you got an example that you can that you can bring? I mean, I get the feeling. I think everyone will understand exactly what you mean. It would be nice to have a tangible example though that you can share. Yeah, I would say you know to give you an example, you mentioned the Bowling River, and that was one of the first like scientific projects we began over there. And how hot In... does it get? I mean, that's it's Boiling River just sounds a little bit you know throw away but it really is a boiling river it can kill you it, you literally see it boil in yeah. some spots it get, it gets up to 99 celsius so like 200 fahrenheit so you absolutely cannot get in there without immediately severely getting injured and we've had had that happen um within our travels as well luckily everybody was safe but it is no joke even if you wear heat resistant gloves that in theory allows you to touch these temperatures, even if you have a double glove in a hand, which we have tried just so that we could test it and just put your finger there for longer than a few seconds, you will still feel it. And so it is 100% boiling and we believe it's been boiling for over 200 years. So the geothermal activity, non-volcanic, but geothermal activity that's happening in the area, it's outstanding for how long it's been boiling or at least the records of that. And I mentioned that because as scientists, we are not really necessarily trained to think about a cultural perspective when doing fieldwork. And so we did plan to, you know, the, the samples we were going to be collecting, how we were going to do that, any type of experiments we were going to do in the field to collect data on site. And we plan all of those details. And at the same time, as a Peruvian native, I did knew that we were going to have to get closely engaged with the community to understand their cultural perspective on us accessing the river. Because in the Amazon, everything has a spirit. And so the cosmovision of Amazonian people is that it's what we in the Western world we know as animism, that every living being or entity like a river, soils, plants, trees, animals, air, everything is going to have a spirit. It can be imperson like personified almost into um, this spiritual being, whether it's a, a good one or a bad one, but it will, they will be considered powerful. And as such, to access these spaces, you need to understand that, to understand what are the practices that people follow so that the cultural beliefs are respected and protected along the way. So that science doesn't become an imposing factor, but rather an encouraging one that elevates this knowledge, which I think we need more of. And I think that's a conversation that happens anywhere around the world where we do still have a close connection with indigenous communities. And lately I've seen more of those topics being raised, which I'm really glad for us to, how do we elevate this knowledge, especially as scientists, we may think that we don't have nothing to do with it, but anybody doing field work has to consider that. And so by learning that, we learned and the team was able to learn along with us that Yakumama is a spirit that is considered the mother of the water. The actual name Yaku in traditional languages means water and mama, mother. And so Yakumama, it's believed to be this, one of the most powerful protective spirits of the river and really the mother of all water-related animals and beings. And it is believed that 
if you anger her, she will retaliate back. And so there is this strong fear associated with it to access it with a lot of respect. And so that's something we had to really be aware of and brought into our expedition so that one of the first things we did with everyone that was new to the area, I already had access to it before, but that was the first time from a scientific perspective, we brought everyone to a part of the river where there is this giant rock that looks like the head of a snake because this river is supposed to be able to embody a snake and scare people off in some instances. And so the local community believes that that part of the river has the strongest presence of the spirit, which is why you see this rock with a big snake head or at least resembles it. And it happens to be when the river cools down, cool enough to be able to swim in it. And so locals do swim in it. And so that's what we did with our entire expedition team. We were almost 40 people from 11 countries and explained that to everyone, had everyone in the river to also show that everybody was respectful of it and that we were all willing to bring in these beliefs into our work to approach it with humility. And we had a blast, but there was also this mutual conversation in a way. And then after that, everybody, I think, had a second thought of, okay, I'm approaching not just a space that seems cool for samples where I'm going to be able to learn so much about microbes and new chemistry, but rather it's something that has ancestral meaning to a lot of people. Yeah, it's so fascinating. And it's so wonderful to hear that you get the locals in involved in the work that you do, um, because it really does bridge that gap nicely. Because whilst, yes, there could be a quite a, like you just said, the, the, the field researchers could be a bit single-minded about what they want to achieve but surely it's the same for locals they can be a bit suspicious of people invading their their space so bringing the two together seems like a really wise idea apart from anything I think it's the best way to drive discovery I think there are international frameworks in place like the Nagoya protocol put in there to protect indigenous knowledge but I in my opinion they there's still more to be done to not just protect it in a legal way but to bring it home how do you elevate it how do you make that relevant that's relevant in a table where countries meet that are representatives that perhaps not even visit the space so how do you make it relevant because by building trust you're also able to work along the community to maybe even access other spaces that otherwise they won't show you, which may be quite key to whatever discoveries you are trying to go or, you know, maybe enlighten in such different ways to drive a lot more data in an ethical way. And that's something we've also experienced with the newer projects that we have, where now the indigenous leaders are being included, not just in the acknowledgement sections, but as co-authors to be able to elevate this voice at a level that I haven't seen it yet and that I hope we see more of. Yeah, that's fantastic. That really is. Um, there was something that you mentioned um, about stingless bees. It made me wonder what your most um, profound or exciting discovery had been to date. Um, was it that or have there been other things? Oh, that's such a that's such a hard question. <laughs> I don't want to put you on the spot. No, no I, I think in every project there is always something, whether I've been to this space before or not, there is always something new that in the moment to me is the most exciting discovery. Um, I'll give you an example. The, I mean, the stingless bees and, and the medicinal honey, it's one of the largest, in my opinion, also not just of 
how interesting it is from a chemical perspective, which we do have a paper coming out soon, just got accepted, um, where we basically for the first time report the chemistry on medicinal stingless bee honey in Peru, which has not, it's been done before in other countries with stingless bees uh, widely, but never in Peru somehow. Um, so that that's definitely an exciting one. I'm happy to chat more about that, but I would say it's in the unexpected when you are willing to look for beyond what you think you may be able to find. So last, not in our most recent expedition, but in one of our most recent ones earlier in the year, we were visiting these ecosystems that are known as white sand forests. They, uh, they have different names, but they are quite literally patches of white sand that you find in and amongst the Amazon River. You are in the middle, in the heart of the jungle, the luscious vegetation and animals that you think of, but below your feet, you have white sand quartz like white sun it's like something you've never seen out there and actually we have extremely poor detailed information or visuals about it it's very hard to find photos or videos many of these ecosystems have been degraded in brazil because extracting that sun serves to make glass so a lot of those ecosystems have been degraded but in peru we still have a few that are quite pristine and quite hard to access but I was just dying to be able to to see it properly. I had visited before, but never really stayed over. And so not being able to do a, a deep dive, we were searching for more stingless bees, which we were able to find. But in the process, we decided to take a UV light uh, at night during our night walk. And I've done that in a few other spaces before, but that was a completely new ecosystem. The few scientific papers that have come from these areas report endemic life not found anywhere else. Insects, mammals, flowers, plants. I cannot even imagine medicinal plants. I don't think they've been explored for that. Uh, but we were able to find life that glows in the dark beyond what we typically would find. So for example, lichens or microbial life on trees or plants, it's not surreal to find. You most likely could find that in your backyard or in your local park, which is exciting to see. And people should do it. You should take a night walk with a little light, um, UV lamp. They're so cheap online. But we were able to see a cricket that when you shine this light on, only its head glows. And that's actually not being reported scientifically or visually anywhere that I've been able to find online after that. We were able to find this crystal clear glass frog, but whenever you shine around the eyes and the eyes were glowing. Things that I never absolutely expected to find if we look a little closer. And I think we just don't know about it because people haven't searched it and reported it in the level that we should be. So I think that was such a beautiful reminder that we just need to keep our eyes open and bring method, bring tools and do it together because ultimately those that are coming in from time to time, we only have a limited amount of, of time to explore. But if you do it in collaboration with local communities, they can become field scientists, like citizen science scientists that continue their work. And I, who knows what much more, like many more discoveries we could find with that. Indeed, it's just extraordinary. I love the idea you've got a floating head and floating eyes in the UV light <laughs> on your wall. Um, 
so you're bringing all this knowledge or you're you know bringing it in a formal way via papers to to the to the rest of the world and everyone's going to be able to read about your discoveries and the work that you've been doing um and tell me where does the um amazon research international the not-for-profit that you set up fit into to the whole picture to do to continue all of that work so after finishing the the phd and the postdoc we continue to work with the Bowling River uh, project that we've already finished the experimental work for. We're hoping to get it submitted soon. It's going to be a massive paper, a lot of collaborators basically documenting the, the extreme microbial life in the Bowling River that has never been done before. Uh, but that project, I didn't want it to end there. And so right towards the end of my time at the University of Michigan, I already had set up this nonprofit really as a result of not seeing what I was looking for in Peru. I was looking for a space where you could conduct scientific research, not in a, not only in a laboratory at a university, because that's needed and that's a must, but how do you tie that in closely and without bureaucracy with conservation? Because in a country like Peru, science cannot happen isolated. That may happen in other places. It's impossible to do it because the social aspect of the work cannot be tied away from science. And so I knew we had to bring in a strong conservation angle. And through all my experiences with Nat Geo, I've come to learn over, over a few years of doing this, that storytelling is just as important as the science we are doing. And we've seen that throughout COVID, right? With so much miscommunication of information happening. And so we need to take the lead in that. And what incredible way of doing that with native people telling the stories. And I couldn't find a space where to do these things in a way that they can all merge. And I had this vision that if we could just provide that space to people in collaboration with our institutions, it's not about reinventing the wheel, but it's about it just providing this space, providing the tools and empowering the locals to do it, that perhaps we could start to, to see a lot more discoveries being reported in an ethical way uh, and in a way that is, you know, it can be enjoyed broadly um, with a, a conservation angle. And so that's why I thought, well, I, I think I need to start something and then hopefully can be continued by local people as well. And that's why the idea of, of building this organization came from, where I knew I had such a strong tie with academia and uh, we continue to do so. We're building collaborations with uh, University of Colorado, University of Northumbria in the UK and the universities in Peru as well, including the Institute of Investigation of the Peruvian Amazon. But we've also bring in environmental lawyers that work through another institution, but are really committed to help us take all of that science into conservation angles. Because I've learned that it's actually quite hard sometimes to be able to connect scientists with conservationists. I never thought that would be the case, but in practice it is. Uh, and I've struggled myself. Um, and I know many people who have been in the same position while also allowing for storytelling. And so we've started that the B project is the first one we're starting with. We already had started a little bit before the organization. And now that's the, the project we're really launching forward. We have the scientific arm going. We have a few of those projects still continuing with us leading the scientific expeditions, but then locals continuing to, to, to aid in the process while also have 
heard what is most needed in the communities in terms of conservation policies. And we've also brought that forward to Congress in Peru. And we've actually got some progress already with some of these petitions being accepted at a, a commission levels. And then hopefully will also be accepted at a broader level and become a national law. And we've been able to do all of these progresses, I think, because in a way, young people have been kind of waiting for something like this, at least I think so, to be able to take action in multiple ways. And so, yeah, I'm just excited to see where we'll be going in, in the next few years with, with the organization. Well, I'm very excited as well. I, it, it really is extraordinary what you've achieved, actually, when you think about the enormity of it, you know, bringing something, bringing so many people together for, for yeah. so many positive reasons, for, and the opportunity that that brings, again, to so many people in so many different ways. It really is quite astonishing. You, I, I really hope you stop sometimes and reflect on how much you've done. <laughs> I appreciate um, it. It's, yeah, well done indeed. Um I wonder, do, um, from a local point of view, um, in, in the jungle, how how are the levels of awareness of um, of um, deterioration in nature, specifically, of course, in in the jungle, and very high, okay. I think, very high, and I don't think it necessarily stems from the media outlets and the information that it's out there, that's part of it. But I think it's from witnessing it. Just to give you an example, people in the jungle depend on the land, depend on the weather, depend on the waters. And just by looking at climate change, even if they wouldn't have any access to internet or information, and many don't, they notice it and we hear from, they describe what climate change is, without perhaps using the scientific terms that we know for it. Just to give you an example, in the jungle, you have two seasons. You have dry season and you have wet season. It's either raining or it's not raining. It's as simple as that. And it's common that you can like aggregate that into groups. So like from October to March is going to be rainy season. Some areas are going to be harder to access. Your rivers are going to grow in volume and you're going to have specific harvest during that time or specific animals that you can catch and etc. However, in the northern part of the jungle, and we experienced it at the earlier in the year, we saw no rain. I think out of the three weeks or so that we were there, one day only it ran not any of the other days while normally we were in rainy season that's unheard of that you could be there three weeks and only one day is actually raining that is impacting the health of the soils it is impacting the amount of fish they can catch it's impacting the amount of growth they can get for certain medicinal plants and we hear it all the way from northern to southern amazon also, the temperatures that some of these spaces are, are reaching, it's beyond what they've been able to cope in the past. So they are going to be at the front of the largest impacts of climate change. Also, on the contamination aspect, in the span of two or three years, there were over 14 oil spills in the Peruvian Amazon alone. And historically, even with most current scientific data, only one in three oil spills ever get clean. And there's really poor amount of investigations on the long term of oil spills because perhaps it's easy to turn an eye away. But when you depend on the water for drinking, when you depend on the water to get your fish, which now are going to be contaminated, it is impossible to turn the, the face away from all of these issues. And it's 
something many of the communities that have access now since for the last 10 to 15 years, they've noticed a difference. They're, they know there's some rivers they cannot get water from anymore. So now perhaps instead of walking 15 to 30 minutes to get clean water or being able to fish, they now need to do two hours into the jungle to be able to access these spaces. The same with stingless bees. Before, perhaps you would only take 30 minutes or an hour to you for you to go into deep virgin jungle and find a stingless beehive, being able to cultivate the honey or take it back home and continue growing the bee. Now it can take four to five to six hours to before you even see the first stingless beehive. And they know they've actually been able to associate in some cases, some communities, what trees are being cut down because that's those are the trees where stingless bees tend to build their home set. And so the amount of knowledge they have, the amount of evidence we see there is imperative to bring forward in formal ways so that there's more action to be taken. We recently had a conversation with the wild bee specialist group from the United Nations to try to understand, for example, in the case of the native Amazonian bees, how can we show that they are endangered? We know from people from their witnessing in these areas in over the last few years that they are disappearing from the south. But because there hasn't been organizations or groups really documenting this in formal ways, then they are not in any red list to show that they need support. And that really blocks many ways of funding, support, governmental action, and et cetera. Um, and I was really happy to learn that Taking into consideration the statements from communities does count as evidence, which it should. And in our specific instance, we are trying to bring in that scientific data in formal ways, right, to serve as evidence. But we should have more organizations like them really taking into account statements from people. Yeah, I mean, uh, what an extraordinary start you've made. It, <laughs> honestly, I mean, I'm slightly in awe. Um, and yeah, hopefully, exactly as you say, more more organisations can start doing the same thing. It does. It does seem a little frustrating. I wonder if there's any hope, you know, before any formal anything has to take place that, you know, if there can be any interim solutions, do you think? I do think many communities are taking upon themselves to start creating change in their local environments, which is what we need. Nobody changes the world from one day to the other. And really, we change it by changing it locally. That's as best as we all can do. And I do have seen many leaders taking action now, being very proactive about that. To, to give you an example, one of the communities in the northern part of the Amazon that we've been working with for the last few years has really taken all the capacity building that we bring in along with our scientific expeditions, understand what kind of trees or plants are healthier for the bees to feed on or are healthier for carbon capture and for the health of the soils. And in the span of a year, they had planted over 60 or 80 trees in the area, really turning their entire backyard into this flourishing medicinal garden that now they also use as a base for ecotourism. So for example, in their space, you can now come visit stingless bees. So which, you know, many visitors are so much more willing to get closer to because you won't get stung, but also appreciate all the medicinal trees. And they have started to be more vocal about their cultural knowledge about them. So putting small signages along these trees to tell you the name that they have assigned to these spirits or to tell you what these spirits are giving them in terms of information. And they are slowly but surely building a social 
like uh, a circular positive economy where now instead of engaging in destructive practices to get money for the day to be able to feed their families like cutting a tree or catching some animals which happens so often and it's not something we we shame but rather need to understand now they have you know a positive source where like they really are caring for the trees because it's part of what keeps their air healthy but also brings them an income and so i think we need more locals driving and leading this type of projects that are interdisciplinary to understand that cultural perspective and the need of people in the field not just by looking at, at it from outside mm -hmm, absolutely it's such an important thing i think people overlook the power of what can happen in, in communities it's always a tendency nowadays to look to see who else can do something but the truth is we can all we can all do something um, and it's really encouraging to hear that it's already happening. What I wanted to ask you was, <laughs> what's the most perilous situation you've you found yourself in, in out in the field, in research? I would say a few. <laughs> um, I would say a few. Um, I'll mention two very briefly. One happened to me just two weeks ago, because I just came from the field <laughs> about a few days ago. We were um, in one of the last ecosystems of high altitude jungle, which I had never seen actually in person. We were above 2,000 meters, 2,000 meters above sea level um, in such a unique high altitude space that you don't even really get mosquitoes biting you because they don't like that space. So that was the first time in my entire life, not just adult life, my entire life that I didn't need to use any repellent or other methods to, you know, get mosquitoes away from me. Um, so that was uh, outstanding. But I got a little sick right before entering the field on the way, actually. Um, I was a little nutty and I got a lot of street food all along the way, which I perhaps shouldn't have done because I got a mild case of gastroenteritis. What I didn't account for is that not only was were we entering a completely new space in literally the heart of the jungle in the farthest community that lives in one of the last high altitude jungle mountains so the the way to get there was really rough over seven hours in a road off trip that was very windy and just right to left right to left but also the being able to do all of this work at the higher altitude although i've never had issues going to high altitude my entire life i also had not done research work in the jungle in these conditions and I'm not you know as young as when I was 20 and so I think I got a bit too overconfident on my physical abilities thinking well I do this all the time I will be okay and we were heading into a bit deeper jungle to try to look for the stingless beehives that the community was raising because we were collecting some samples for one of our new conservation projects and on the way, we were with a team. We had a few new students that had never actually traveled, but were joining us to, to aid in the project. We had some of the community members. And all of a sudden, my stomach not just rumbled, but like I felt like my entire blood just went to my feet. And I said, oh, God, am I, what, what, am I going to pass out? And I just had to sit down in the floor and just ask everyone, OK, I just need five minutes. And it was the first time that I've ever had to slow down not be like in the forefront and showing you know I'm also a young woman leading a project amongst people from different ages different backgrounds 
men and women. And so I have always felt that my physical ability to lead is just as important as my intellectual one. And so that felt very powerless from that perspective, thinking, oh God, everybody's going to think that I'm just a joke, that I, how, if I cannot walk this way or this path, how am I going to be leading all these projects that I'm talking about? This was a community we've worked with before, but never met in person just yet. Um, And so all of these thoughts happened through my mind for like a a second, while also I had to lay down because I thought I was going to pass out. Um, my sh- probably my sugar levels have dropped and then just at, as I was having all of that mentality of feeling powerless I also just felt a lot of trust in the team that I had and the student that had come to uh, National Geographic sent her as part of a program of assistant in the field in STEM courses Um. I, I knew I had her, like she had my back and I just asked her to take the lead for me. So I decided to take like that powerless feeling and be like, you know what, I'm going to be humble that I need help right now. And that it is actually, if I'm not feeling super healthy, I'm not going to be the safest leader right now. And so I just asked them to please take lead and to just head to the next stickless beehive, not any farther. So we can all still be within each other's radius of like sites. Um, but for them to continue, they already she already knew how to handle the equipment. We had tried, we had tested it many times. Um, so she got to be the first one to test it on the field. And I was really happy because she really stepped up to it. We had th- had the training in the past already, but I think that was such a strong reminder to trust absolutely everyone in the team where you are in field work because you absolutely never know what's gonna happen. And sometimes the you know, these feelings of whether it's emotional or physical. Uh, loss of power are going to come in and we need to be able to rely on that and something similar but not with my health happened in the Bowling River where one of the team members from another team but we were all together uh, got too confident on his knowledge of the river he had been many times in the Bowling River he's like I know this we usually carry a stick to test the floor, the ground before we step to make sure that it's solid and then it will it's gonna withstand our weights. That's just common practice that we take um, to really check every step that you're about to take. He didn't do that. He's like, no, I know this way. He jumped into what seemed to be solid ground, but under all of the leaves there, there was boiling mud. He was wearing flip-flops. And so in the matter of three seconds, he got both his feet all the way up to the angle in boiling mud and then immediately jumped out screaming and had th- third degree burns. Mind that we were a small team. Everybody else had already gone back to camp. It was 5.30 p.m. It was going to go dark really quickly and we had opened a fresh path to get to that space, meaning we had to be walking in a cliff with trees all around us. There was no, a clear, no clear way to walk. And this was also the largest guy in the group. Nobody could carry him. And so that happened in the spam of a second. We all just looked at each other and said, we need to get him out of here. Like that's just, we're going to be in, in the dark with no one around. Nobody can take care of this. We need the specialty, which specialist, sorry. We always have a nurse traveling with us. And so at the time, I was glad that I had this first aid kit with me. So we did what we could in the moment to keep everything clean and away from mud and all the things. And then just immediately started to walk and 
it was 30 minutes that turned to like an hour and a half because he did get dark in the middle of the walk and he did got beaten by fire ants on the way, which made it all just 10 times worse. And right when we all wanted to take a deep breath and be like, okay, we got it. We got across all of this path. We realized we were still needing to cross the Bowling River. We were on the other side. And when we came out, it was so dark that you couldn't see the river. All you could see was steam hot vapor coming at your face and little splashes of boiling water hitting you. You could not see anything. And to get originally to the other side, we had to cross this log that was barely put together. So you had to already be super careful. How to do that with someone injured when you could only see vapor? No way. I think when we crossed that, I, in my mind, we all had forgotten. We had to still cross that. Everybody, you could just feel everyone's spirit just kind of go to the ground. And everybody, I think, got scared properly for the first time. And the guy was almost entering into shock. You could see him starting to shake. And I just remember my mom is a nurse. I just remember her saying, never let anyone go into shock because then you don't know what the body's going to do. And it's going to be harder to bring them back. And so we made a plan really quickly, decision-making. Everybody I felt was the leader in the team. We each assigned a role. One was going to cross and call, the, and call the nurse and get the locals to help us build a bridge really quickly. Somebody else is going to be getting some things from the first aid kits to like wrap him. And I remember all I did was just hug him and just like try to tell him that things were going to be okay and to get him to laugh and to calm down. Everybody just went into their natural instinctual role in a way. Um, and luckily, it all ended up just being a story because he was fine, totally recovered. Locals came, built a bridge in like no time. The nurse came. She was able to treat him right away. He didn't need any surgery. He did not go into shock. We prevented that. Um, but I think I would say that was the second. Well, that was one of the biggest moments of, of feeling powerless as a team, but still being able to act on top of that. Well, that's extraordinary. I mean, it feels I keep saying that <laughs> everything you say is extraordinary. <laughs> um, I, I mean, it, it sounds more like a, a novel or something. The way you <laughs> think this is actually um, happening is um, quite fearsome, really, if you think about it. And your feet as well. It's such a horrible thing to have out of action. I've broken an ankle and that was bad enough um, to <sighs> think both of them out of action like that not not pleasant um yeah I, I guess it takes away every all the power right how, what where do you how right. do you move I haven't had that happen fully so I cannot even I can only think about it but yeah that's that's intense yeah it's um not 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 you can if you can avoid it you should um I think I just um I just want to finish really um by asking and I don't want to give the game away because people will <laughs> listen to lab innovations in the Royal Society of Chemistry Theatre um but 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 just to maybe whet some appetites what um what can people perhaps look forward to hearing from you in that theatre I think they'll be able to hear stories like these ones and many others but that in a subtle way, make you think about how to run a lab in greener ways, whether you are a leader or whether you are a member of the lab or even just a new student. I think there's so many lessons we can learn from living in the Amazon, from studying and working in the Amazon. And I think with my scientific background, I can help translate that into ways that 
turn into practical, like um, practicable actions, tangible things we can do to get a little greener towards our planet from our local environment, in this case, a lab, because everybody can do something, even if it feels tiny to us, sometimes we forget the big, large impact that it can have. Indeed. Well, look, that sounds really, really something to look forward to. So hopefully everyone will come along and listen to you there too. Um, and um, thank you, Rosa. It's been a <laughs> Um, and I, I feel slightly, slightly um, inadequate now, but <laughs> no, you've been so lovely. I really appreciate the the questions and we've been, I've told stories actually, I've done quite a few number of podcasts right now, but I've definitely shared with you some stories that I haven't put out there in podcasts so that, you know, you've been able to, to really get quite deep. I appreciate that. I'm very glad to hear it. And thank you very much. And we'll see you again soon. Thank you so much, Susan.